This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I will be your host today. Joining me, as he always does now, is Will Bushman, our color commentator and our director of student ministries here at Rio Vista Church. Today, we are going to be continuing on a series that we started on uh, reasons why the first century was so perfectly and sovereignly orchestrated for the gospel to just explode. Like it was so set up, you know, just like a, a ball on a tee for Jesus and the gospel to come and just knock it out of the park. And so, just to remind you of some of the things that we talked about on our last episode. We went through seven reasons, and we have several more to go, but the first one was the Jewish exile, and when we talked about the Jewish exile, we talked about how 600 years before Jesus came with his ministry, the Babylonians had come, and it seemed like a real setback, this awful thing that had happened to the Jewish people where they were not only conquered, and the temple was destroyed, and Jerusalem was destroyed, but Jews were scattered all over the earth. They were sent to all regions, and the idea was we're going to destroy this people and dissipate them so much that they'll never have an identity again, and it totally backfired in the sovereignty of God. These Jews went and built all these synagogues, and they started teaching of a coming Messiah and and the prophecies of what his kingdom was going to look like, and so all of the regions of the world were now kind of marinating in the promises of the gospel so that when Jesus did come and the apostles went out, guess where they went? They went to all those synagogues and and all these regions just lit up with the gospel and it was like God was spreading kindling, you know, all over the world for the gospel to just explode and he was using unfortunate means of the Babylonians to make that happen. And so then you had in the law the pilgrimages to Jerusalem which just so happened to perfectly coincide with Passover when Jesus is crucified. And then three days later resurrected where there would have been hundreds of thousands of pilgrims who had made their way from foreign nations to come to Jerusalem who had witnessed all this. And then 50 days later when the Spirit comes and inhabits the earliest believers and does miraculous things, it just so happens there's hundreds of thousands of Jews from every nation coming to see that too, and they all go home. And those are our earliest evangelists. That's why the gospel is spreading before Paul ever goes on his missionary journeys or before the gospels are even penned. Then you add the destruction of the temple, which means now all of a sudden the Jews, they don't have a sacrifice system. They don't have priests. They don't have a place where they can commune with God. And yet the Christian church is coming out saying, no, 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 Jesus was the temple, and now he's made you a temple. Jesus was the Lamb of God who was sacrificed for you. He is the great high priest who lives always to intercede for you. And so he perfectly replaced all of the things that the temple had brought. Then you had Alexander the Great who conquered huge swaths of of the, the ancient world and brought Hellenistic culture to bear. He brought the Greek language. Now all the territories were speaking the same language, just ready for the Gospels, which were written in Greek, and all the epistles, which were written in Greek, and the Old Testament, which had been translated into Greek 
known as the Septuagint, that had spread all over the place. And so now the whole world was on the same page, able to speak the same language. The Pax Romana had come along and put peace, you know, to where you could travel without worrying about being attacked by foreigners or pirates on the seas and all that stuff. A unified political system to where you traveled between borders without having to get passports or visas. Like it was just set up and 250,000 miles of roads, if you remember, that crisscrossed the Roman Empire that made travel extraordinarily easy and 50,000 miles of paved roads, which is even more than Eisenhower accomplished with his interstate highway system going back to the 1950s, which is insane that Rome, with such primitive technologies, accomplished more than we did with machinery and everything else. But the world was just set up so perfectly for the spread of the gospel. So that's our review. Today, we're not going to get into as many, but they're pretty cool, I think. <laughs> so warning, I think they're pretty cool, which... Might, might cause some eye rolling. No, I would agree. I think this one's cool. I mean, a little heady, but it gets there. Yeah, and so it's Greek philosophy. So don't tune out. Don't turn off yet. <laughs> but in the centuries prior to Christ, you had Athens that came to prominence. Four centuries, five centuries before Jesus came along, the Greeks were the, the big powerhouse of the region. And with the Greeks came, because in Athens, they worshipped the goddess Athena, and Athena was the goddess of wisdom and warfare. And so Athens began devoting all of its attention toward wisdom, because that's the goddess they worshipped. And so Athens became a birthplace of philosophy, and you had some of the most famous philosophers that have ever lived that came out of this Greek culture, and it's, it's men like Socrates and Plato, and Aristotle, and all of the playwrights that wrote, men began to really wrestle with the questions, the bigger questions in life, like, why are we here? How did we get here? What's our purpose? What is death all about? All of these questions, is, is there a possibility of goodness in this world? It's all those kinds of questions they started wrestling with, and what happened is all of these philosophers would wrestle with questions, but they would they would come to an impasse where they were like, yeah, we see how it's all played out, but there's something missing. There has to be something more that we just can't see here, which as we will see in today's conversation, the gospel came and answered all of the, the missing pieces of their philosophy in ways that were really powerful. Yeah, it's pretty amazing what we're going to see because when did these guys exist? Like when all this conversation we're about to have today, what what's the time period of all of these guys? All right, so you can remember this. There's there's a lineage of people, and Socrates died, they believe, on February 15th, 399 BC. So 400 years before Jesus' birth, Socrates dies. Okay. And he was put to death because of his beliefs, right? Hem, hemlock is how that was made famous. He had to drink the hemlock poison. But so you had Socrates, and Socrates had a student named Plato, and Plato had a student named Aristotle, and Aristotle is actually the tutor of Alexander the Great. So when you're thinking through timelines, when yeah. when the Hellenism, Hellenism spread all over, that was from Alexander. Well, Alexander came at the tail end of the train of the greatest philosophers that the world had ever seen from the Greek world. So Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, then Alexander, and so we're talking 400 years plus a little okay. for Socrates before Jesus is born. And then the Roman world took over the Greek world. 
but kept all those things. Yeah. These were still debates. And then you had other schools of philosophy that started coming in um, and debating things like Stoics emerged. And, you know, but philosophy became very, very important in this era of the world. Okay, so 400 years before Jesus, they're asking the questions. That's right. Okay, cool. Which incidentally is right when the last book of our Protestant Bible, Malachi, ends right at 400. So the philosophers, it seems like, then pick up and start saying, why are we here? Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, so then during that period, it's the philosophers that start talking. And there's a, the early church really saw all of these philosophies as like the way to, to lead Gentiles to faith. They, yeah. they really saw that. It's almost like pre-evangelism, I Com was thinking. Completely. That's exactly what it is. So there's a church father whose name is Clement of Alexandria. Alexandria was in northern Africa. And Clement of Alexandria comes, and he's in the first couple centuries of the church. And listen to what he says. I'm going to read you a quote of his, but it's like, this is how they saw Greek philosophy. He says, God is the cause of all good things, right? He brings everything. The scriptures, the Greek philosophies, all the history of the world, he brings it all to pass. He's the cause of all good things. Some... Uh, primarily, like the Old and New Testament, God inspires. He gets exactly what he wants to say on the page. And then he says, and others by consequence, like philosophy. Hmm. And so it's like God didn't come to Socrates and Aristotle and those guys and say, right, you know, he didn't inspire it to where he got the precise words that were, you know, yeah. divine and inspired and authoritative in their writings. But indirectly, he got them to propose ideas that were exactly what was needed in that time. And it's so, so Clement says this, perchance too, philosophy was given to the Greeks directly and primarily until the Lord should call the Greeks. And what's your sense? Like what you're saying, pre-evangelism. He said, for this was the schoolmaster to bring the Hellenic or Greek mind to Christ, just like the law was to the Hebrews. Philosophy, therefore, was a preparation, a paving of the way for him who is perfected in Christ. And so what he's saying is, hey, the Hebrews had the scriptures. And so the scriptures kind of prepared you to see Jesus and went, oh, that's what all of the scriptures are about. Now, Jesus becomes the key that unlocks all of scriptures and makes sense of all the Old Testament. What Clement is saying is all of the philosophy that's come up, all these philosophers and their debates and the questions and their longings, now all of a sudden Jesus shows up, and just like Jesus fulfills and completes the scriptures, now Jesus shows up and completes the ph philosophers, and it's really true. It's it's fascinating. And so in today's discussion, we're not we're not going to get crazy, you know, diving into all different kinds of things, though we could, and it would it would be fascinating for me, <laughs> maybe. Uh, but we're just going to deal with four different philosophies that were very uh, prevalent, very famous in the early church. And so the first one is the argument of the unmoved mover. The next one is the one and the many, then the logos, and then finally the search for justice. And so the first one is the unmoved mover. And this one came from Aristotle. And the idea was, um, if, if you saw a ball, let, 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 me, let me back up. If you were in the, the foothills of the mountains and a podunk town where you have no neighbors for miles. It's eerily quiet and dark and everything else. And you're in a house all by yourself. There's no pets, no visitors, no nothing. And all of a sudden you're out in the living room reading a book and a ball bounces through your living room. How, how are you feeling? I'm not feeling good because I mean, <laughs> either someone's there or a ghost exists. That's yeah. Like this is, this is not Bad good. News. Somebody's with me, right? Well, why do you assume that? 
because something has to move something. Yeah, something had to throw the ball. Something had to budge whatever it was that put that ball in motion, and so there has to be something else there. And so Aristotle would say, okay, we're looking at a universe that's in motion. Everything is in motion. There's there's life that exists. There's planets that are moving around. Everything's in motion. Well, something had to move that. And if that thing was moving, well, then something had to move that. And if that thing was moving, then something had to move that. And eventually you go back far enough into the chain there has to be an unmoved mover that yeah. started all of this. And so the idea is there's only two options. Either the the universe and everything in it is eternal and it's always been moving and there's never been a still figure, which now we know from science the universe cannot possibly have been eternal. Like we know it had a point of origin now. There's agreement on that. Well, then if it had a beginning, what was there in the beginning? What was that first unmoved mover? that caused all things to start going in motion. And that is where Aristotle began pointing. Now, Aristotle actually believed in an, in an eternal material universe. He didn't know what we know now. Yeah. But even still, he thought there had to be an unmoved mover. We now know there absolutely has to be an unmoved mover, a first cause. And so the Greeks were like, what, what was that? You know, you get an discussions like that with people who have questions about faith or they're skeptical and you get into that art that discussion or argument all the time like okay i mean people who who throw up evolution it's like okay yeah. well even still like let's say humans came from primates and primates came from a lower species and you work your way down to the amoeba and everything well where did that come from and 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 it becomes this kind of feedback loop yeah. <laughs> you know and usually what happens is they turn around and say, okay, well, where did God come from? Yeah. And the reality is, is everybody recognizes there has to be something eternal, right? Yeah. Has to be, because otherwise everything can't come from nothing. So there has to be something that's eternal. Either all matter is eternal or there's something that created us that's eternal. And the only one that makes sense anymore is that the creator existed out of time, space, and matter and was the first one to move and set things in motion because inanimate stuff can't create itself, right? Am I making sense? Yeah, yeah. And, Christ okay. and Christianity's always believed that. Like, Completely. Pretty hardcore. Like, the yeah. Orthodox faith has been like, no, we believe that God is eternal. We believe that he existed outside of time and space and all of eternity, mm -hmm. and then he decided to create time, matter, space, and everything. Yeah, completely. And so, like, the first verse of the Bible is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so that means in the beginning, before time started, right? At the moment time started, God was there. Yeah. Which means he exists outside of time. And he brought time into motion, and he created the heavens, the spatial elements, mm -hmm. and he created the earth. There's material elements. And so you think about it, like all of existence is defined as time, space, and matter, right? And the very first verse of the Bible, you have the scripture saying God was there before time. He created it. God was there before space. He created it. He exists outside of space. And he created all matter. Like, he's not a material force. He's a spirit. He's outside of everything material. I remember reading Augustine, um, and he said something like, I, remember, I was a brand new believer, but when I read this quote, it like made my mind explode, and it goes <laughs> something like this. He says, okay, so you're outside of all things, and you create all things, and then you fill all things. Where does your excess go? And it was something like that. You know, you, you create all things, fill all things. Where does your excess go? Because you're infinite in nature. So 
our universe isn't big enough to contain you. Mm. You know, the scriptures say that God fits the universe in the span of his hand. Yeah. You know, well, where do you go? You, your brain can't imagine an infinite God, but he's outside of time, space, and matter. And the ancients began wrestling with that question. Like, it doesn't make sense. Everything that we see moving and, and happening now, there has to be something outside of itself that was the unmoved mover, the first cause. What is that? And the philosophers, by and large, rejected the idea of the pantheon of gods. That's why Socrates was killed. But he saw that there had to be some divine force out there that was causing all this. So then the next thing that we're going to talk about was the philosophy of the one and the many. And and this one is is interesting. I didn't, I'd never even heard this before. Um, but this philosophy says, if you look at the world, um, it seems like it's in a perpetual state of flux. Everything seems like it's totally chaotic. Um, things are always changing, you know, seasons come and go. A person's health is constantly changing. Um, you just look around at, at weather events and everything, everything seems totally chaotic and random and independent. And yet, if you take all of that stuff, they're all governed by all of the same laws of physics and motion, and they all follow the same arc. Like the seasons are constantly changing, and yet they're seasons. <laughs> they're totally predictable. We know when hurricanes come, right? We may not be able to predict exactly when they're going to come, but they come at the same time. We know when snow comes. We know when heat comes. We know, like it's predictable. It follows the same pattern. And so you have all these many variables, but they're all governed by like this arc of, of, of a design that's cohesive. You know, you, you look at almost 8 billion people that are on planet Earth right now, right? Yeah. And every one of them has a crazy different life. Like your life is radically different than mine. Laura's life is radically different than mine. Mark's life is radically different than mine. And yet you follow the arc and everybody is born, right? Yeah. Everybody has, you know, to learn how to walk and everybody has to go to school and everybody, you know, has to provide for, you know, like all the stages of life are there and then you begin to get sick and old and, you know, handicapped until you die or whatever. Like the arc that's there follows the same for all 8 billion of us on planet Earth. And so what they would see is the world looks wildly chaotic, and yet you can see the sovereign hand that has imprinted the same patterns on all the chaos. So there's the one sovereign design, the arc that's consistent through all of it, the laws that govern all of it, and the many, which looks like chaos. And no matter how hard we try, we can't break that. Yeah, no. Like, we can't break out of that design. I know that's kind of popular right now, even, like, <laughs> extending the longevity of life, and they can do it. I'm sure technology maybe will give us more gears and healthier lifestyles and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But eventually, like, the arc is going to come full circle. Like, yeah, completely. death is coming. Like, no one's... You're not escaping No one's it. escaping it. Yeah. I was thinking, like, when when someone wins a championship or whatever or political conventions where they drop all the confetti, if you watch the confetti, like a particular piece that's kind of fluttering around in the wind and randomly changing directions all over the place it looks utterly random and yeah. it looks totally chaotic and yet that random chaotic piece of confetti is governed by all the same laws of motion you know wind aerodynamics gravity all of that stuff and it, that all those same consistent precise laws govern every single one of those pieces of confetti that look like a sea of chaos yet it's all governed by one cohesive design. And the, the ancients saw that, and it was like, huh. 
you know, because it's easy to go, man, this world makes no sense. Everything is out of control. And yet eh, it's pretty predictable. <laughs> you yeah. know, like human nature is wicked. You give somebody power, they will abuse it. Like, I mean, you really pull back and you go, hey, there's there's some maxims in this that are absolutely true no matter how many times you play the story out. They're all the same. There's one design through all the many that look chaotic. And so they would use their wisdom to say, okay, based on the one, the, the golden thread that weaves its way mm. through all the chaos, that's where we try to find wisdom. That's where we need to anticipate where does the arc lead us and we've lost that like everybody now is entitled to their own story and their yeah. own truth and we we neglect the idea of natural law a higher law that governs everything but the greeks saw that and they were like there's something here we see sovereignty in the midst of the chaos well how does that point you to the gospel is that rhetorical no that's for you oh no i, I think it is interesting like how they were able to get so close. Mm -hmm. Like just logically, they were able to look at all of this and not get bogged down by details. And they were honest. And there's a humility that you kind of see in philosophy, which kind of seems the opposite of modern day philosophers. Yeah. But they're saying like, okay, we're seeing all this, but there has to be something more. Mm -hmm. Like there has to be. And you can see like this longing. And obviously we're finding out like they didn't have that answer. Mm -hmm. Like they could never get to it because they were still thinking in a logical sense instead of a supernatural sense that, you know, God who created the earth would inhabit the earth. Mm -hmm. But they were honest enough. The cool yeah. thing about the ancient is like, and it's frustrating to read because we want to everything wrapped up in a bow. Like we want the answer, like solve this for us. But in so many of the philosophers, they would, they would point out all the truth and they would, they would draw the picture as best they could. But then at the end they would go, but we don't know why. You know, mm -hmm. we can't put our finger on how exactly this works, where today, you know, everyone's got an answer, right? Um, and including the scriptures, like we would claim that we absolutely have the answer as revealed in the scriptures, but they were honest enough to wrestle and come to a point where they were like, but we don't see a solution that finally wraps all this up. We just know that there's design. And I mean, they could reason there must be a designer because in all the chaos that seems random, because the the Greeks who ran to the gods, right, they would explain all the chaos by saying, well, Zeus is at war with this yeah. other god, and, you know, this god is winning, or this god is winning, and this person's shown favor, so that god must be winning. And it was it was this chaotic battle of the heavens. And the philosophers are stepping back going, no, 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 no. In all the chaos, there's one design that always wins. You know, gravity always wins. <laughs> you know, particular moral traits more often than not, when, you know, these kinds of ethics, when, and produce better societies, like they noticed common threads and began to weed away and say, you know what, let's not pay attention to all the chaotic, impulsive, random movements. Let's focus on what's true behind all the noise. Yeah, and all of this, they weren't, they didn't have a solution that they were trying, they were trying to get to a solution, mm -hmm. but they weren't, hey, this is the solution we're trying to get to, which sounds a lot lot like modern academia like oh you know goodness. like yeah. we have the solution we want this and we're going to backtrack until we can figure out a way to get to it mm -hmm. so yeah you're right they're they're honest and they're humble mm -hmm. in a way that just like okay we see something's going on and mm -hmm. we're just going to follow the thread until for them it didn't end yeah. with god but it got there to there's a gaping hole that only god can fill yeah and it, i think your your analysis of how we are as moderns is is <laughs> that's pretty spot on where we start with the conclusion first yeah and then we go fish for the questions and the evidence that we want to find to fit our narrative 
And that's that plagues us today. There's no mm-hmm. humility in in the discovery. And so whenever you have somebody who, whether he's you know, a podcast host like Joe Rogan, who's asking questions that are not popular and he's catching flack for it and people don't want to work for his podcast channel or whatever, you know, or, or Elon Musk, who's way out of the box or, or somebody who comes along, who's just totally counter, you know, you look at all the, this is probably not going to be popular, but all the COVID conversations and do mask work Well, you're not allowed to ask that. That's just how we are as a society. And so if anybody goes against the narrative or if anyone ever challenges the established result, well, we, we want out. We, we have to tear them down and silence them before questions can be asked. And that, and, and the Athenian world, what democracy allowed, and this is why philosophy came out of democracy, is it put everybody on a level playing field. Everybody was allowed to have an opinion. And so really scandalous things came forward which sometimes were so scandalous that they said, okay, Socrates, you need to drink this. Here's here's a hemlock shake for you. Uh, Because they were really scandalous, but they weren't afraid to ask. Yeah, and Jesus, which is this whole perfect storm that we're talking about, it was interesting as we're talking through all this, Jesus came at a time where people were asking questions, not just giving answers. Like they were honestly Mm -hmm. searching for truth. And you can see that Jesus picked this time because he came at a place where people were hungry and desiring for someone or something to answer the questions that they can't answer mm-hmm. themselves. And it's, you know, brain to mouth right now. Um, but you notice Jesus, when someone comes to him with sincere curiosities, you know, you think of Nicodemus coming at night and being like, oh, I've got some questions yeah. about what I'm seeing you do. Jesus entertains them. Mm-hmm. And it's like they have this great conversation, but the people who are so proud that they have it all figured out, you know, and they've missed the mark. That's where Jesus is like, good grief. Like just you're, you're, you're stubborn. Your hearts are so entrenched that it keeps you from being able to see the truth. Yeah. And, and so while you, you say, okay, God has said it. And in the scriptures, Jesus claims that as absolute authority. You're not allowed to negotiate that away. Jesus does call on us to have a humility of spirit to be able to say, okay, maybe God is saying something to us that our that our arrogance needs to pull away from, mm-hmm. our pride needs to soften, so that He can still speak to us. Yeah, you know, even as Scripture is authoritative. Um, so fascinating, and the Greeks had that. So the the next major thing is the logos, and this one is just so fascinating to me and so cool. So a lot of you are like logos. I don't I don't know. Why is that? Why is that cool? Well, it's a Greek word that in the Bible is repeatedly translated as word, and it's it's a it's a something that you come across quite often in the scriptures, and it's probably most famous for John chapter one, and it's it goes like this: It says, "In the beginning was the," and if you're if you study your Bible, you know what's coming. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Those are the first words out of off of John's pen when he writes the gospel. And he says, he, so the, the word is a he, it's a person, right? He was with God in the beginning, and through him, who's this talking about? Well, Jesus. Jesus. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And the, the word, the logos, the word, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And you're like... Why is John harping on this idea that the Logos is God? 
The it, Logos was with God. The Logos was God. The Logos became flesh and made his dwelling with us. He's like harping on this idea of the Logos, which if in the English, if I just said it's the word, like I always just kind of simplify that. Okay, well, it's the Bible or, yeah. you know, it's it's God's spoken word. Jesus is just kind of the manifestation of what God's desire is or something like that with a spoken word. But John is talking to a culture where that particular word, logos, was mega loaded. <laughs> like, it wasn't just, oh, a word. No, no, no. It was like the operating principle of existence. So if you go back, even in the days before Socrates, you had a, a, a Greek philosopher whose name was Heraclitus, and he's the one who started talking about the logos. So five centuries before Jesus. And what he called the Logos was it's the hidden harmony of the universe. Remember how we talked about the one and the many and how there's there's a golden thread that's in all of it? Well, he says you take all those threads and you put them together and there's this hidden harmony. It's almost like God is conducting an orchestra of all these ones, these, these laws in the metaphysical realm. You put them all together and there's this hidden harmony, like God is creating an orchestra of laws and designs and everything that make the universe what it is, and that is the logos. It's the meaning behind everything. It's the way it's put together. It's the design. It's the purpose. And so listen to how he describes this in his writings, and, and listen for the echoes of what John says in chapter one of his gospel. Listen, he says, although the logos is eternally valid, now get, so how old is the Logos? Eternal. He's eternal. He's eternally valid. He has always been. Even before time was there, the Logos was eternally valid, and yet men are unable to understand it. Well, that's that's what John says, right? You Remember in John, he says, the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. That's what he's saying here. He's like, you know, this design that is so, you can just see it. And all, when you peel away the chaos, you see the golden threads of purpose that are just woven throughout the universe. But men can't understand it. Like we look at the chaos, we get lost in circumstances, and we miss the design. We miss the reason. We miss the purpose. We don't get it. And he says, you know, they don't, they're not only not able to understand it before hearing it, but even after they've heard it for the first time. It's like you can come to them and say, here's the reason for living. And they're like, it just slaps their forehead and falls to the ground like it doesn't sink in. And so Heraclitus goes on to say, that's to say that although all things come to pass in accordance with this logos. Now, that's a huge statement, right? That means can can humanity thwart the logos? No. Can your decision? Can you fail it? Like, can it, is anything out of its control? No. There is some sovereign force that is bringing the logos into accordance with its will. The logos's mission is going to be accomplished. It's the design. It's the whole purpose why we're here. And men seem to be quite without any experience of it. That's how he closes. So this logos is eternally valid. No one understands it. Everything is going to come to pass in accordance with the Logos. And then John comes along and says, I would like to introduce you to the Logos. Here he is. Whoa. Like the Greek mind would have been like, wait a minute. This is the eternal one that gives reason and purpose to everything that's ever been. That's exactly what John wants you to understand when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So what is the purpose for everything? 
God is. Yeah, and it's wild because even the repetition, we read it, and that's mostly how we got it. But John was obviously repetitively trying to say Logos. So oh, yeah. the Greek ear would be like, oh, wait, I think I heard Logos. And he yeah. says it again because, like, okay, that one was definitely a Logos. And this one, oh, definitely a Logos. Yeah. You know, the oral tradition was, no, I'm writing to these people. They would know that Jesus is mm-hmm. what they've been searching for. Yeah, and it's not just Heraclitus. So he's writing five centuries before Jesus, but you, you trace it forward, and the philosophers are like stuck on this word. It's it's a big deal. Like this is your reason for living, right? So you get to the Stoics, which is more they're more popular as you get closer to the Roman age. And and the the Stoics, you know, when we think of a Stoic, we think stiff upper lip, you know, just we're we're not gonna let emotion hit us. We're we're stoic. Yeah, we're rocks. Yeah, that's that's what it is. But the Stoic was really big on saying, like, how do we conform our soul to meet the realities of the world? Hmm. So you, you had two schools. One would say, and it's still, by the way, there's still two camps in the world. The Stoics would say, how do we conform our soul and our behavior to meet the realities of what we find in the world? Because the world's not going to budge. <laughs> so how do we live in a way that best meets the design of the world? And then you had another school that was really popular in the days of Jesus called the Epicureans. And the Epicurean says, well, I'm not changing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I want to change the world to meet my soul. And I'm going to chase after pleasure wherever I can find mm-hmm. it. And everything needs to meet my desires and what I want. I'm not going to conform to it. It's going to conform to me. And we still have those two schools today. You've got the moralists who say, well, you know, you need to you need to do this because this is what's rewarded in the world, and you need to change your behavior to meet the realities. And then you have the other ones who say, "No, I'm taking a pill. I'm I'm going to take this drug. I'm going to get this surgery to enhance my whatever. Yeah. Like I'm going to, ch- and I'm social media. Good grief! I'm going to change reality to fit what I want. Mm. And so you have these two schools, but the Stoics are like, no, 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 that's not how it works. You need to change yourself to fit the world. And they looked at the logos and they were like, okay, well, if, if we're looking to conform our souls to fit the world, it's really important that we understand what's the purpose of the world. Yeah. And so they looked at the logos and they were like, it's they called it the anima mundi, which is just fun to say, which is the the soul of the world. It's the operating principle. It's it's the the animation behind everything. It's the purpose behind everything. And they called it the logos spermaticos, which you hear the word sperm in there, and it's what it means it gives birth to everything it's it's what creates everything and they were like we have to figure out the logos because it's the reason and design and we need to match it well fast forward and you get the greek philosophers and jewish philosophers one of whom is a famous guy named philo of alexandria and he lives at the same exact time that jesus is walking on the earth Okay. And so this would have been contemporary with Jesus. His his teachings would have gone around. He was a Jewish person, so it would have been very, very well known among the Jewish circles that Jesus and the apostles are walking around with. And listen to how Philo describes the Logos, right? So he's writing this before the Gospels are penned, and he says the Logos is the firstborn of God. Like, that's, that's pretty loaded, right? Well, he, what he's saying is it's the first thing that comes forth from God is this operating. He's not imagining, I don't think, an actual child. Yeah. But what he's saying is it's the very first thing that, that emanates from God is the purpose of creation. It's the reason behind everything. It's his sovereignty that, that makes all things come to pass. So the Logos is the firstborn of God. Then he goes on and says the Logos of the living God is the bond of everything. It holds all things together. It binds all the parts. It prevents them from being dissolved and separated. 
And so as you're hearing, oh, the Logos, okay, it holds all things together. It brings all things to pass. It's the firstborn son of God. Now I want you to stop for a moment and listen to what Paul writes when he writes to the Colossians in light of that. In describing Jesus to these people that would have totally known these Greek ideas and philosophies, this is how he describes Jesus. He says, he, Jesus, is the image of of the invisible God. Hmm. So the one that's up there that is a spirit form that we can't see, no, Jesus is him and we can see him. He is the, listen to what he says, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven or on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him. And here you go, for him. So what is your purpose for living? All things are created for him. He is the purpose. And then listen to what it says. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And it's like Paul is saying, hey, Philo, you know that firstborn that you talked about? Yeah, here he is. (laughs) You you know the one that you talked about is the reason for all of creation? Well, all things are made for him. Hmm. You know the one who holds all things together and brings all things to pass? Well, in him, Jesus, all things hold together. And it's this conversation about the Logos that's going back and forth between the Greeks and the early apostles that writing the scriptures, and the Spirit has inspired it all. And it's this fascinating, absolutely fascinating to imagine walking back into the first century among the Gentiles who'd been, you know, steeped in all this stuff, and like, oh my gosh, like they're this guy is the Logos. Like that would have been wild to imagine. Your reason for existing is a carpenter who came from from Nazareth, you know, (laughs) who's God in the flesh, who loves you so much that he would die for you. It's it's wild. But that's exactly what Jesus purports to be. He's, you know, in the in the ancient worlds, they would have looked at the Logos and they would have said, you know, it's it's ethereal. It's it's way too high for us. It's it's above us. And we're pedestrian, and, and we only get to see kind of the cruder things. But we can, we can try to discern some of those heavenly things. And Jesus comes, and, and like Paul says, you know, he redeems all things together in himself. He holds all things together. Jesus becomes the perfect crossroads of the two realities. I remember Dr. Gage, one of my seminary professors, he drew a circle and he said that, that our existence is made up of all these different binaries, right? You have God and you have man. You have heaven, you have earth. You have spirit and flesh, life and death, you know, glory and suffering. You have infinity and finite stuff, wealth and poverty, all that. You, know, you can imagine them all. Put Jesus right in the middle of that circle and draw lines from one binary through the cross to the other side of the circle to that binary, and Jesus is in the middle, right? Jesus had existed for all of eternity as spirit, and yet when he comes into this world, he takes on flesh. And so those two binaries hold together in him. You have Jesus as God, and yet he becomes a man. So the two binaries are connected in him. You have Jesus who comes from heaven to live on earth, two binaries that are connected in him. You have Jesus, the source of all life, who is going to come and suffer and defeat death the two binaries in him. You have Jesus, the eternal one that steps into time. You have Jesus, who's the famous one who received all the praises of angels that's now rejected by men. You have Jesus, the one who has all authority, who says, no, 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 now I will be subject to submitting to my father. You have Jesus, who is the creator of all wealth that has ever existed, 
who comes and experiences life as a homeless man. So those two binaries connect in him. You have Jesus, the author of righteousness, who becomes sin. The two binaries connect in him. All of this, you have Jesus who is it warrants all glory, all glory and honor and power belong to him, and yet he steps into this world and experiences suffering, the greatest suffering ever known. Those two binaries connect in him. And so at the middle, you have a God who holds all things together, but he doesn't just sit at the intersection. He takes everything that he's entitled to, all of that good stuff, and he sets it aside, and he comes in and he takes all of the pains of humanity and all the the, the bad stuff, the death, the, the sin, the suffering, the poverty, all that, and he takes all that on himself and gives us life and heaven and glory and an infinite inheritance and wealth and holiness and, and renown, and he tells us that we'll reign with him in heaven. And so we get all of his attributes, and he takes all of our mess. I mean, we get them in finite measure, but he takes on all of our mess. And so that's, that's the logos. You know, it's, it's not just this ethereal thing that's so far above us that we can have nothing to do with it. No, that logos, the word became flesh. What? And in him was life, but men didn't understand it. They rejected him. That's what John is getting across. Like, do you understand how amazing it is that the logos became a man among us? That's amazing. I mean, from what we're seeing, God really teed up the apostles. <laughs> yeah. You know, like it was like they saw it, you know, <laughs> he had the Greeks create the problem and then he had the solution yeah. in Jesus Christ. And they're like, okay, now go tell people. Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So you have Plato. So you just imagine him on the pitcher's mound, like teeing up a softball yeah. and Jesus just cranking it. Yeah, yeah. this is old man softball too. Yeah. Nothing's coming fast. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it was so perfect, but it answered all of these questions that had left the Greeks going, well, I guess, I mean, we can just, maybe the Logos one day, you know, maybe yeah. we'll figure it out. We got there. But no, now it's, no, you've seen him. We've met him. We have his teachings. We know what the purpose of existence is now. Radical, satisfied, all that stuff. And so the last one I want to talk about um, is really going to just focus largely on the most famous philosophic book ever written outside of Christianity, and that's Plato's Republic. And so Plato is writing about the philosophy of his tutor, uh, which is Socrates, and so it's basically Socrates is going in different conversations throughout the Republic, and he's trying to come up with this answer that plagues us all, which is, is there any possibility of justice and peace and goodness and righteousness in this world? Because it seems like every regime that's ever been tried, every style of government, every proposed like society that's ever been tried ends up with total collapse, ruin. Uh, it ends up with tyranny. It ends up with abuse. It ends up with scandal. It ends up with all of these terrible things. And so Socrates, who's probably the greatest philosopher to ever live outside of the faith, comes along and he says, okay, I'm going to devote all of my brain to try to figure out, is there a way where we could create a society where righteousness and justice and all of those things are possible? And he goes through all these different regimes and conversations. It's brilliant how he puts this together. And then he comes to the conclusion, no. 
I mean, it's a real downer. <laughs> like, it's, it's just not possible here. And why is that? Well, like at one point he says this. He says, except for someone who from a divine nature, so hear that. He's saying, unless someone comes from heaven and has a divine nature and they can't stand, they're literally allergic to doing injustice. Or someone who's gained knowledge and just keeps away from injustice. No one else is willingly just. So you either have to be like straight from heaven yourself or you have to have some kind of access to heavenly wisdom that like radically changes you. Otherwise, no one on this planet is willingly just. Well, that's a biblical That's a biblical doctrine. The, the depravity of man, every single one of us is born with, with pride and arrogance. And, you know, there's that old saying that, that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's true. You take the best person, a King David, who started as this humble shepherd who loved to praise God. You give him power and he turns into a monster. And you see that again and again, like humanity cannot be trusted with power. Socrates totally gets that. And he's like, man, unless someone comes with a divine nature, no one is capable of wielding power. They'll always use it for injustice. They'll always use it to benefit themselves. Even the best of us will do that. No one is willingly just. And this is what he says. If that person ever does show up, this is where it's like, whoa, Socrates, like this is prophetic. Now, this is after Isaiah had written prophecies about what Jesus would look like. It's after David writes Psalm 22 about what the Messiah would look like, where they describe you know, the crucifixion and the sufferings of... So Socrates is writing well after the prophets, and yet this is what he says based on his own intuition of humanity and justice. Get this. And this is far after the prophets, but way before Jesus. Still. 400 years before okay. Jesus... 300 plus years after okay. Isaiah so kind of right, right and 600 years after David, right? Okay. Psalm 22. He says the just man, if we ever got a truly righteous man who is capable of governing, the just man who has such a disposition will be whipped. He'll be racked. He'll be bound. He'll have both of his eyes burnt out. And at the end, when he has undergone every sort of evil, he'll be crucified. And you go, whoa, whoa. Like, did God like talk to him? Yeah. Like, because what he's saying is humanity is so wicked that if you ever had someone who truly came and, and stood up for the oppressed and called people out on their, their sin and led from a place of justice and peace and selflessness, we would so hate him because he would reveal the contrast that we are that we would kill him. Wow. And so I want you to now imagine you're the Greek world and you hear all the Jews are clamoring in their synagogues about this savior that's come. And he claims, you know, he's, he's the logos and he's all these other things. And now all of a sudden you say, you know, they claim that he never sinned, that he claimed to be a king of a better kingdom. And oh, by the way, he was crucified. And now all of a sudden all these Gentiles are going, wait, 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 what, what? <laughs> this just man came claiming to be a king and he was whipped and racked and bound and crucified. Uh-oh. <laughs> you know, like maybe, maybe this is the guy. Yeah, they're like our hero Plato told us about this guy. That's right. They're like our guy, Plato, who we we learned from, yeah. we follow, who was our guy. Yeah, he was our guy. So this guy is the one that he was yeah, talking about. The greatest about. mind pointed us to somebody and now he's at our doorstep. That's right. Wow. That's right. Stunning. And so Plato gets done writing about this. Now I want you to imagine like this is the best all-star they got. 
It's also a pretty long book. It's a long book. Yeah, it's and you need someone to walk with you yeah, through yeah. it. You gotta have a tutor through yeah, this. Don't one. pick up your own copy and get going. <laughs> if I tried to read this on my own, like at the beginning, there's a guy who's yelling at Socrates in the book. His name is Thrasymachus. He's kind of the tyrannical figure who's just angry at Socrates and wants him to shut up. <laughs> I liked Thrasymachus yeah. the first time I read it. Like, yeah, just shut up. Yeah, I'm like, tired. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, uh, Socrates concluded that justice was impossible in this world because of humanity. Like, we're, we're too self-serving. We're too appetitive. We'll always, no matter what the regime is, no matter what the regime is, we'll corrupt it. And so, but listen to how he concludes, because this is also pretty profound for a Greek mind. He says, but in heaven... Perhaps a pattern is laid up for the man who wants to see it and found a city within himself on the basis of what he sees. Now, I want you to stop for a moment. What, is he, what does that mean? He's saying justice is not possible in this world. No matter what the regime is, you'll never get one that's like, oh, my gosh, they're righteous all of a sudden. Humanity's yeah. wonderful. Look at, look at them go. You have to find a pattern from heaven first. It has to come from without you. It has to come from outside of you. And by the way, you'll never have a government. You'll never have a political party. You'll never have a presidential candidate that's the answer for this. You have to see a pattern that's in heaven, and the only chance you're going to be able to build a city or an empire based on righteousness is if you build it within yourself on the basis of what you see. And so you that's brilliant. Yeah. Like you, you look at our world and if your hope is in building the, the kingdom or the city or the country or whatever, based on people <laughs> and you think that humanity is going to, to bring about righteousness. No, it starts one person at a time based on the pattern that they find in heaven itself. They have to have a, an outside wisdom that comes and changes their heart. And then you build that kingdom inside yourself. And so when the New Testament comes and says the kingdom is inside you, hmm. what do you think that's coming from? They're saying, yeah, it's yeah. Socrates. And now you have a pattern of heaven. And build the kingdom in your heart. The kingdom's inside of you. And so you start changing the city one person at a time. And by the way, at Revelation, when it says a city, the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven prepared as a bride... Well, what is that city? It's all these believers wow. that, have, that have been transformed to show the heavenly pattern. All these people had built a city in themselves that are now cobbled together as living stones to make the holy city that is going to be a righteous kingdom. And so you have Socrates who's just obsessed with this. And one of the words, the key word in the entire book of the Republic is a Greek word called dikiasune. It's fun to say. Just go ahead and say it. Dikiasune. Right. <laughs> kind of takes me back to seminary, though. I'm yeah. too close to Greek. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, yeah, I, anyway, I've forgotten so much of it. But Dikiasune sticks with me. And in this word, when Socrates is writing and, and speaking and Plato writes the Republic, he uses this word 131 times in the Republic. This is an important word. In the New Testament... The same word is used 92 times. And in the Republic, it's translated justice. Is there such a world of justice? Yeah. In the New Testament, it's not translated justice. It's translated righteousness. Hmm. In other words, can you ever be right with the world? Can you ever be right with God? Because that's really what righteousness means, is yeah. you're, you're in good standing. You're, you're right with God. And so in the New Testament, when they're saying, hey, 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 you know that dikiasune that Socrates was looking for? We got it for you. We got it. And by the way, it is possible in this world. So in, when you read Matthew's gospel and it says, you know, when he's being baptized and he says, 
I have come to fulfill all righteousness. You know what he's saying? I've come to fulfill dikiasune. That's the word. He's saying, you know, Socrates says you couldn't find it except maybe in heaven. Well, no, no, no. I've come, God, Logos, in the flesh, now here, and I'm fulfilling all righteousness. I'm giving you the dikiasune. You can't do it. I'm doing it for you. Or Paul, where he teaches that righteousness comes when we live by faith in Christ. Well, guess what? That righteousness, that's dikiasune. So you have, you have Plato writing and saying, can we ever find dikiasune? Can we, we just, it feels like we're incapable of it. We'll never find it. And Paul comes along and says, hey, dikiasune comes when you have faith in Christ. That's how you answer what Socrates desperately longed for. It's found in him. Hmm. Or Jesus takes our sins and covers us in his righteousness, the dikiasune of God, right? God is the source of dikiasune, not you. Um, and that's that's the message of the gospel. Right, the righteousness of God has come apart from the law. That's Paul's words. And now the righteousness of God comes through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. So everything that Socrates was longing for, is dikiasune possible? I want you to imagine the Greek minds that are like, man, we've been looking for dikiasune, dikiasune, dikiasune. And now the apostles are writing all these letters that are like, here's the dikiasune. It came from the Logos of God, who is the one who controls all the chaos, who is the, the one and the many. You know, He's the golden thread that runs through everything. His design is the perfection. He is bringing all things to pass. He is the one who's behind all things. His purposes will never be thwarted. He's the unmoved mover that was here from the beginning, before the beginning. He's the answer for all of these philosophies, and the Greek world is getting all this going, this really fits everything. Yeah, you have to be a really bad Greek not to look at all of this in that time and be like, oh, this is exactly what we were looking for. Like you would have to literally reject everything that, that the smartest guys that, that you guys revered claimed. You have to be like, oh, no, that can't be true. Mm -hmm. They were wrong also. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the apostles put forth the gospel and Jesus in a way that absolutely intentionally is aimed right at the Greek heart and saying, here's everything you've ever longed for. He's the answer to it all. And by the way, when it comes along with you know, news that this guy worked miracles, the Jews can't explain it. The ones who reject Jesus are mm -hmm. calling him a sorcerer. There's people who've seen him do all these miracles that write about the miracles that are trying to find ways to dismiss the miracles. So it's not just like, oh, here's a cleverly crafted argument. Now, there's a whole bunch about this guy that we can't explain. There's, there's people who claim to have witnessed him raising from the dead. Death could not hold him. It couldn't defeat him. He did all of this stuff. And oh, by the way, here's everything that's taught about him. And the more you piled up, the, the, the evidence of the miracles, the resurrection from the dead, the, the miracles that accompanied the apostles that blew everyone away. The, and then on top of it, it, he just fit every longing, every longing from the Hebrews that, that the Old Testament made you go, gosh, when is he coming? Well, he came and fulfilled it all. And then he does it for the Greeks because every longing that they had been teeing up, Jesus comes and he perfects it. It's just like the sovereignty of God to so weave every story around the entire world and all the sacred, profound teachings everywhere. And Jesus comes and says, that's me. Hmm. And he satisfies it all. And even the philosophy of the Greeks really came to be the perfect storm for Jesus to fulfill 
mm-hmm. what he came to do. Yeah. I mean, you, you look at all of these different things. And so now, now we've had eight of them and we've got, let's see, six more to go before we finish up this series. <laughs> But it really is. I mean, it's, it is impressive, and it's a great comfort when you stand back and you realize, you know, God was sovereign over all of this. Every single one of these circumstances, every single, every, you know, the fact that he put these thoughts in Socrates' mind and, you know, he just arranged everything in the history of the world to so perfectly be ready to receive him. And what that says for me is there's no circumstance that I'm going through, that you're going through, my family, my church, my country— there's no circumstance that we're going through, even though they might seem unpleasant in the moment. There's no circumstance that he is not weaving together for his glory and for my good. And that's a great comfort. Amen. All right. Well, we're going to let it, that stand as our last word. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us. If you have questions or requests, uh, we would love to hear, what would you want to hear from us? If, if you were to able to say, I'd love to learn more about this. What would it be? Email us at outofwater at riovistachurch.com. We will be back next week to pick up on some of the, the particulars of the Roman culture, which are really fascinating, and how Jesus came and so perfectly met their every need that they were longing for at that time. We hope you have a great week. God bless. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.